Welcome to Music Matters Podcast with Daryl Craig Harris, talking about all things music with celebrities, artists, music business insiders, and more. Welcome to Music Matters, a podcast about all things music. And today I have a special guest and also a good friend, um, bassist Dave Swift, who's been the bass player for later with Jules Holland on the BBC for many years and also on the radio, uh, BBC uh, radio programming. And uh, how are you doing, Dave? Yeah, I'm doing very well, thank you. It's, it's a wet, rainy, cold day here in London. Is it always? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Actually, I, I've, been, I've actually had a lot of great days in London. <laughs> no, we, we we had an amazing summer, but today it's 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 not that nice. So it's a perfect time for us to be doing this in the nice, warm, comfortable. Oh, there you home. go. So all good. All good. Yeah. What part of London do you live in? I live in uh, it's southeast London. The actual area. It's called Charlton, uh, and it's the closest the, uh, place to where other people would have heard of is probably Greenwich. We're, oh, okay. We're, we're three yeah. minutes away from Greenwich, uh, which is awesome. Just- I actually stay with my good friend uh, Fiona Ross, jazz singer. She lives in in, in uh, Greenwich. That's a lovely little yeah village. Is really cool. Yeah, and yeah, it's very historic, and um, yeah, it's just nice to have it just down the road because it's very t- Greenwich is very touristy. So if you live there, you have to deal with right, yeah, the tourists. Whereas if you live just a couple of minutes away from it. You can just go in and step out and visit and things like that. So yeah, that's that's great. I mean, I love London, and I actually, I mean, I normally I've actually been recently going to London maybe once or twice a year. I'm really missing it. <laughs> so hopefully, I'm missing my fish and chips and all the all the fun tourist stuff and <laughs> and walking around. But uh, where are you from originally? Uh, my hometown is a place called Wolverhampton, which is in uh-huh. it's in the West Midlands. Again, people have probably heard more of Birmingham. Uh, which right. is about 12 miles away from, from Wolves. But yeah, it's it's right in the centre of the country, really. Also, it's where uh, the very famous jazz bassist Dave Holland comes from. Oh, interesting. I actually, I interviewed Dave for Jazz in Europe. He's, he's an awesome guy. Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, what a history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, that whole area actually has, I mean, obviously you have Ozzy and those guys and that whole, there's a lot of musicians that came out of that area. Yeah. And someone that we work with a lot with Jules is a lady called Beverly Knight. Okay. She's a great sort of uh, British sort of soul R&B singer, but she also does West End stuff as well. But uh, yeah, she she's awesome. from Wolverhampton as well. So yeah, it seems to be, you know, there, there is the occasional hotbed of talent. <laughs> well hey that happens everywhere actually sometimes too in, in unexpected places which is kind of awesome but uh um how did you uh, get into music i know you had sort of musical family a little bit right your brothers or yeah kind of because well, i mean neither of my parents played an instrument but they both love music so and my mom could sing as well she she had a very nice voice and there was always hmm. uh, music on in the house whether it was on the radio or you know we used to watch those mgm musicals a lot yeah. Uh, and they were always on TV. So there was always music uh, going on. But both my older brothers, who are eight and 11 years older than me, they both played guitar awesome. at home. Um, so they, they bought instruments into the house. And my eldest brother eventually bought an acoustic piano. So they used to play just for their own amusement, really. They never played, as far as I know, they never played in bands or, or anything like that. It was just at home. But, but, you know, and they had great records as well that I was, yeah. that I would sneak in and listen to on the old dance set player, you know, the <laughs> record players. So yeah, yeah. It was, I guess it was my brothers that were the ones that were, you know, really sort of bringing the music into the house as far as instruments go. 
And did you, um, I know you play trombone. Did that, was that your sort of your first instrument or how did that happen? Um, well, the, the thing is because I tried my brother's guitars when I was at home and, and I just found them too difficult to play and very painful. Those acoustic guitars, those strings were very yeah. uncomfortable for me. And I tried playing the piano as well, but nothing really grabbed me. But I, I always sang in choirs. I sang in the school choirs. I sang oh, in the local okay. church choir. So, so I was, I was really into music. I loved it, but I guess I just hadn't found an instrument that really. Yeah, your voice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so when I, when I went to secondary school, I really wanted to play the saxophone because I'd seen there's a TV series over here called Top of the Pops. Right. A regular weekly series, and they always seemed to be, uh, you know, obviously there was guitars and basses and drums, but there was always a lot of sax players, and I always thought the sax looked very cool. Yeah, they, they kind of they kind of get the rock and roll glory right out front. Yeah, exactly that. So yeah, yeah, when I was about twelve, I went with my parents to one of these open evenings at my new my senior school, um, and I was really thinking saxophone, saxophone, saxophone. And then <laughs> all of these older kids were playing like oboes and cor anglais and flutes, and I'm thinking, no, this this isn't this isn't for me at all. Where's the where's the sax? You know. Uh, and it turns out they didn't have one. So the next thing I saw was a trombone lying in a case. And, oh. you know, I've always liked unusual instruments. I've always liked things that are a little bit different, you know. And I saw this trombone. And I didn't know anything about it, but I just thought it's got a slide. And that really intrigued me. Yeah, it's kind of a cool sound, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, and it was kind of quirky and it was, it was different to everything else. Again, there were mostly woodwind instruments there. So I put my name, so they, the school said there was no saxophone. So that was that. So I put my name forward for the trombone. Uh, but then I was told shortly afterwards, they'd only got one and they'd given it to another kid. So they gave, <laughs> me, a, they gave me a euphonium. Yeah, okay. Now, the thing is, the euphonium, it's a beautiful, because I, I love all brass instruments. And euphonium, yeah, that's a, that's a great sounding instrument. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really nice. But the thing is, I'm thinking to myself, well, you don't see many euphoniums in pop and rock bands on the TV. <laughs> You know, that's true. Yeah. Kind of I don't know if the, I don't know if the euphonium player gets the girls, but yeah, I, I could exactly. be wrong. <laughs> so anyway, but I just thought, well, let's have a go at this. So I used to have joint lessons with a guy that had the trombone. We had the same teacher. Uh, and after, you know, and I gave it a go. And, I, and after about sort of three or four months, maybe longer, I just thought this isn't this isn't quite right. You know, and then I mm. just I, I gave up with it. I, I gave the instrument back. And then music for me was. I was still singing in the choir, but actually playing an instrument, I forgot all about it completely because I, I just thought, well, if I can't have the instrument, the first, my first choice, and I can't have my second choice, I just thought, what the hell, you know? So that was it. I, I didn't bother playing anything after that for, for several years. Yeah, that's awesome that you know that you have the singing background because I, I'm sure you know too, being a singing bass player, which is what you ended up being ultimately is like something that can actually keep you working. Yeah, <laughs> a singing a singing reading bass player is is kind of gold. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, well, this is the ir ironic thing. I was singing way before I played an instrument. So I was singing in the school choir when I was very little. But then I joined my local church choir, uh, and in fact, it's quite funny because I've recently been contacted by a guy who's writing a book on that area that I grew up in, but focusing also on the on the church and the choir. And he's asked me mm -hmm. to contribute to it. And he said awesome. to me, "Well, how did you?" was it your love of music that got you into the choir? I said, no, not at all. I said, me and a friend of mine were caught. We were really bored. You know, I was 10, he was 12. We got caught throwing bricks at the church one day. 
like little stones. <laughs> and it wasn't any kind of anything against organized religion. It wasn't a, a, right, right. It was just, just a, being kids. Yeah. It was kids being born. <laughs> we're just throwing bricks like this, board, board, board. Yeah. And then the vicar came out and he said, "Look, what, what, what are you doing? You know, this isn't like, a, you know, if you're this bored, why not join the, why not join the choir?" And because mm. I already could sing. So, so again, this is, I was 10 now, so I wasn't playing any instruments at all. Right. And I went, yeah, you know, why, why not? So I went along to the Friday night choir practice the next week. And I stayed in that choir for nine years. Wow. Awesome. Uh, you know, and, it, and, it and was, I love, you know, I love, I love church music too. Like it's from a singing standpoint, oh, yeah. it's like beautiful stuff. Right. Oh yeah. And, and the thing is, I have to admit, you know, it wasn't a religious thing. Right. I've got nothing against sort of, you know, religion or anything like that. But for me, it was just, and I love the building, you know, because I mean, mm -hmm. even though I was technically throwing bricks at it to begin with, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but, we won't, we won't talk about that. Yeah, but, you know, it was the church where my, where my mom and dad got married and mm -hmm. I just loved the building. And yeah, it was the music. It was just that kind of choral hymns, carols. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I loved it and I found it very moving. And I, I started off as a treble and moved to alto. Missed out ah. completely and went yeah. on to bass. So I was actually singing bass parts way before I was playing them. Interesting. And you're, you're, how tall are you? Because you're a very tall guy. Well, I'm still one of the smallest ones in my family. I'm, I'm only, really? yeah, I'm only six foot three. Wow. You know, so my dad was six five, my eldest brother six six. So it's funny because when I, we did a last live stream in London, we did, we took a picture together. My wife is like, how tall is that guy? I'm like, he's a lot taller than I am. <laughs> I look like, I look like a little shrimp. <laughs> yeah. My, uh, my middle brother, uh, he, he, he's the tiny one. He's only six foot one. You know, he's the short wow. one in the family. You know? Awesome. So how, how did you get into, um, how that you got back, ultimately you got back into trombone and then how, did, oh, what you, was the bass transition? Okay. Well, what happened? is you know um like i said when after the euphonium that that was it for me and the annoying thing about that is because i didn't then study music as an academic subject at, at ah. secondary school because i thought to myself well okay so i'm not playing an instrument and i'm thinking how how could you get a job as, as a musician right. both my parents yeah. worked in in a factory you know there was no one in my family that were in the arts sure so i just think i just thought what's the point in studying something if it's not all I could think of was as opposed to following yeah. my bliss and my passions, I was mm -hmm. thinking of work, you know? So, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it's that, that's what, that's what it was like for us at the time. So, and it's crazy when you think that I'm a professional musician, yet I never studied music as a, as an academic subject. So yeah. what happened is um, I picked all the wrong subjects, you know, I should have picked like art, music, literature, uh, acting all those and I pick woodwork and metalwork and all these subjects that I was terrible at. I mean all, all, all the stuff where you can lose fingers <laughs> oh yeah I mean for, for, for my wife Lucy I think you know whenever there's any DIY needs doing she knows not to ask me right watch your fingers <laughs> so um so yeah I, and and but then when I realized that this wasn't happening for me I got really despondent I was around about 14 uh, and I just got really fed up I was good at sports that was the only thing mm. I excelled at and I still love basketball and, and track and field to this day. But um, but what happened is I met the kid who got the trombone two years prior to this. And he's, he, stole he, you, he stole your trombone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and he carried on playing, but with a new teacher. And I asked ah, him, okay. I said, what's it like? Is it's great fun. You get to, you get to miss a, a lesson each week. Um, mm. You know, you get to band practice, you go on trips. And I said, you know what? I'm going to give this one more go. 
one more go. So uh, I went along to the, the teacher, which is a guy called Philip Johnson. Uh, and I said to him, I'd like to play the trombone, please. And he said, I, I can't take you on. And I said, well, why not? He said, because you're too old. And I remember thinking at 14. I was going to say an old out of 14. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm going to jump forward a second because I tracked down my old trombone teacher a few months ago. Yeah, we just talked about that. Yeah, yeah. I haven't spoken to him for 36 years. And, wow. and I wanted to speak to him to thank him for, for taking mm -hmm. me on. But I only just discovered recently the, the actual what, what happened there because it wasn't that he didn't want to take me on himself. It was because the, the school, the, the rules of the, of the school curriculum, whatever it was, right. were if a child at 14, because if they're going to leave school at 16, there's not enough time for the child to, to really get to grips with the musical instrument. Right. Two years That's true, I isn't guess. Enough. So yeah. they, they told all these visiting peripatetic teachers, don't take on any pupils older than 12 or 13, because there's just simply not enough time. It's going to waste everyone's time, you know. Now, right. for whatever reason, he must have seen something within me that mm. was different. So he's, yeah, I mean, you had a you had you had a desire. I mean, that that's yes. the thing. I, I think, yeah, a, a, exactly that. And so he said to me, he said, "Look," and again, I didn't realize, I didn't find out until recently. Against his better judgment, you know, he he, you know, but he thought not his no. He, he was going on the school rules, so he sort of said, mm. "Look, here's a trombone. I'm going to let you borrow the school and take it away for two weeks. This is how you play it. Come back and we'll see." And those two ah. weeks, I went crazy. I just practiced. Cool. I just yeah. didn't stop it. And I, but not more importantly. I fell in love with it. Hmm. And I came back after two weeks and he went, oh, okay. And I became his pupil. And then within like a few months, I'd taken my first exam on it. And, and I'm, I'm passing exams where yeah. it, wow. I used to fail everything else. And I'm thinking, wow, this is great. This is good. So, um, so yeah, and it was, so when, when I spoke to him recently, I, I had to th thank him so much because I didn't realize how much he put his neck on the line for me. Oh, wow. Making that's happen, great. You know. But anyway, so so I was playing trombone and, and that's how I learned to read music. You know, so mm -hmm. I wasn't studying music as an academic subject. So I learned everything from the trombone. And then yeah. I was feeling very good about myself. And then uh, the school band, we decided to form our own little group, as you do at school, you know, outside of wind band. And, right. and, and we had all these other instruments and no bass player. So someone says, well, who's going to do it? It, it, and that's often the way with bands, you know. If was, I know, yeah. Nobody wants to play bass, or they. Didn't. I've actually got a pretty funny story about how I how, how I become a bass player. I'll tell you later. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I sort of said, well, look, because I've played guitars at home, my brothers, you know, right. it's not not a bass, but it's it's still a string instrument. It's so in the family. Yeah. Yeah. So my eldest brother took me out, and we bought my first bass guitar, which was a K Fender Precision copy. Mm -hmm. And if ever there was anything could be used as a boat anchor, it was this K <laughs> P bass copy. Honestly, it was it was just yeah. the heaviest thing imaginable. But because I could already read music straight right. away, all I all I had to do was work, learn where the notes were. So mm -hmm. straight away, I was able to play in this in this group. And then my trombone teacher could see this. Now my trombone teacher was also a fixer in the in that area. In other words, he he was booking musicians. Right, like a contractor. Or, you know. Exactly. So he could see this and he's thinking, do you know what? Dave could do well as a pro trombonist, but more people need bass players than trombone players. Right. Yeah. Uh, so he That's said true. to me, <laughs> yeah, one of the best pieces of advice ever. He sort of said, listen, if you take up acoustic double bass as well as bass mm -hmm. guitar, you'll get even more work. Yeah, uh, that's, such, that's such great advice. 
Yeah, and so I was like 15 when this was going on, still at school. So the school didn't have one or, or, or a bass guitar. They didn't have any of those instruments. So I had to buy my own. And so at that time, while I was still at school, I was playing trombone, bass guitar and double bass. Um, and then as soon as I left school, I, I didn't turn pro immediately. Um, I was doing gigs, but I, I worked in a music shop for a while. But then my trombone right. teacher started to give me work. Well, awesome. you know, he, he didn't want to give me work as a trombonist because he wanted the trombone work. <laughs> well, yeah, there, <laughs> there that's <was>. true. <laughs> so he was booking me as a bass player. So that was it. When I got to 17, um, yeah. I, I turned pro. I'm thinking to myself, there's enough work for, for me to carry on doing this. So, so, yeah, from 17 onwards, I was a professional musician. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, like to get, you know, the thing is, you're so fortunate to have guys like that guiding you and yeah. giving you great advice, right? Oh, yeah. Well, that's the reason why, to be honest, with all due respect, I, I it was such a long time ago. And you know, when you're a kid and any teacher that you have always seems to be way older to you than they are. Right, exactly. You know, you just think everyone <laughs> they seem like they're 60. They're actually like 35. Or yeah, something. yeah, exactly. You know, so... Um, so when I discovered he was still with us, I thought it was it was wonderful, you know, and it mm -hmm. was so important for me to be able to speak to him on the phone to, to give him my gratitude. And you know what? The, we've just discovered this other bizarre coincidence. His wife, who I had, I thought I had no connection with, her her father, who sadly just passed away a few days ago, her father used to sing in the choir that I was in, the church choir. Wow! So that's amazing. So I actually sang with my the father of my trombone player's future wife <laughs> you know it's all it's all very complicated <laughs> yeah no, but it, it's just weird how because i, I yeah. said the the two the two people really that had the biggest impact on me uh my musicality apart from my brothers who introduced the instruments but sure. one was the choir master which is a guy called stan morris uh he was the mm -hmm. choir master and the organist at our church and the other one was my trombone teacher philip johnson and it's so weird because I thought these were very separate people. Right. But only yeah. in the last it's... few days, I discovered, like I said, that my trombone teacher's wife, her dad was connected with my choir. So all of a sudden there's this. Yeah, sort of synchronicity. Right? Yeah, it's just, it's, it's so weird that these two key people are, are now connected, you know, so. So how did you, um, how did you end up getting to London and, and that whole process? I mean, obviously you were, you were gigging, you were, you were already kind of busy. How, how did that happen? Uh, well, yeah, mo mostly I was working in the area that I came from. So I was doing a lot of theater work, pit work, uh, sessions, TV things. Mm -hmm. And I did some, I did some cruise ships, oh, okay. which were great fun. I did four cruise yeah. ships in the mid eighties. Awesome. So, um, so that was great for me to, to travel, see the world, you know, meet yep. lots of new people and musicians. Yeah, you're and now that you're connecting with people and, and you're getting a chance to to do what you love. That's that's an awesome. Yeah, thing. yeah, exactly. So, um, and, and it was the first time in America. I'd never been to America before, and, ah. and in New York in particular. So I bought my first right. fake book there. You know, yeah. I, I bought loads of recordings that you couldn't get back home. So that was a fantastic time, a lot of fun. But I knew that the music I was playing on the cruise ships was not. It wasn't that fulfilling, you know. You were backing, right. you were playing for dances, or, or yeah, it's sort of the musicians. It's yeah. a musician's day job in a way, yeah. So, <laughs> which is which is fine. But. Absolutely, you know. But uh, you know, but I'd go back to my cabin and I'd be listening to Weather Report, Return to Forever, sure. Al Demiola, yeah. and I'm thinking, mm -hmm. this, I love this creative improvisational music. So, yeah, uh, when, when I when I got to a point, it was in the late '80s, I think it was '88, and I discovered. You know, I, I need to be playing more creative music with creative musicians. 
And the first thing I did was, and I wanted to study as well, because as I said, all of my knowledge came from playing the trombone. Really. Right. Yeah. It was, I, and it was the base end of it was a lot of just being self-taught, yeah, but that's, absolutely. it worked obviously. Right. Yeah. And, and just, yeah, you're just out there doing gigs, but there was lots right. I didn't know about sort of harmony, improvisation, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So I sort yep. of wrote away to Berkeley because I heard that that was the place to go. This was in 88 and I got the, uh, the prospectus and the cost of going to Berkeley back then was just, yeah, it was yeah. off the scale. <laughs> expensive. Thought. I thought that's not going to happen. So right. I, I thought the next best thing is to, is to get to London. Oh, and, okay. and I thought, and I'll study privately with, with some people. Um, and also perhaps the people I end up studying with will help me get work as well. So that's right. what I did at the end of 1988. I moved to London. Uh, a friend of mine, I didn't know that many people. I, I knew two people, I think. Um, and he was actually giving lessons himself. Um, he tw- he'd formed this little kind of music school a uh, very small, low-key thing. Uh, and he, he ended up saying, well, will, will you teach there? And I said, well, I've come to London to study. <laughs> <laughs> but you're already a very experienced player by well, then, right? So at this stage, yeah, I'd had like eight years experience as a professional player. Yeah. So I said, oh, okay, I'll do this. But then I made sure I, I checked out the people that were teaching. And there were several right. people that went to, to Berkeley. So I started to study privately with them. And, uh, awesome. and I was shocked at how little I knew about Mm. harmony chord mm-hmm. structures because i could read everything i was doing up until that point was written down most of the bass parts i was given were, were actually notated you know i, I, right. I wasn't sure. doing a lot of stuff that was um that was just like improvised or just or just chord charts yeah, or whatever yeah, exactly so yes. so it was a shock to me when i started to study how little i knew about this stuff but i'm just thinking to myself i'm in london i'm in the right place very very fertile place I'm going to gigs. I'm going to Ronnie Scott's. I'm I'm watching jazz musicians. I'm buying jazz records. I'm studying with jazz players. So I thought to myself, this is it for me. This is, this is where I want to be and what I want to be doing. You know what's what's great about that, Dave, is that you were open enough to say, "Hey, I don't I don't know everything I need to know." Because a lot of guys, when they've been playing for a number of years, they get really, I don't want to admit that I don't know certain things, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right because there, there was at that time there was a real stigma attached if you were if you were um, an established player or you know if you were a pro player that you were studying mm-hmm. with someone because it almost right. it almost looked like uh, you know a chink in your armor. It was almost looked as though yeah. you know you weren't who you were supposed to be. And and I just thought, well, you know, I really didn't care about that. I just thought it's important for me to study the accumulation of knowledge. And mm-hmm. because I and a lot of my motivation actually. And, and even now I study like crazy. I'm always studying music. Um, and I think a lot of it is because I did badly at school, you know, with my mm. academic subjects. Every, sure. Everything was C's, D's and E's. <laughs> you know, I only got an It happens. A, yeah, I only ever got an A in phys ed and playing the trombone. You know. So, um, you know, and it's really funny. I think and it, a lot of it is to do with finding something that you're passionate about. And I was very passionate about music. And I think once you find something that you are passionate about, then you're going to give it everything. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, and it's, it's sometimes. I mean, it takes sometimes. It just takes a while to find that, right? You don't. You don't. Some people. Some people know it really early. Some people. It takes time to develop it and figure out what you really like and what oh, yeah. you're drawn to. Hey, well, listen. I, I got married for the first time last year, and I'm 56. You know. <laughs> So, well, and you and you did really well. Yeah, you. <laughs> yeah I, mean, I became a dad three and a half years ago for the first time. So, so sometimes, yeah, you know, I, I was always a late bloomer. 
<laughs> you know, as long as you get there, that's the important part. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, the cool thing about London, of course, is there's such a vibrant music scene. I mean, it's basically similar to New York, um, that kind of energy. And that's one of the things I actually really like about London. Um, tell me about the, the Jules Holland thing, how that came about. Sure. Um, I know you were doing a bunch of other stuff before that, obviously, with yeah. television stuff and, and soundtracks and that kind of thing. Well, I mean, I wasn't actually appearing on TV, but I, I was, yeah, I was playing on soundtracks. I, actually, I mm -hmm. did appear in one film when I first moved to London. There was a, a British playwright, a very famous one called Dennis Potter. Oh, okay. He, he did a lot of films and TV series, and he was doing a film at the time with an actor called Alan Bates, and it was called Secret Friends. Hmm. Uh, and they wanted some musicians to play on the soundtrack, but they wanted us to be in the movie as well. Oh, well, there you go. So cool. that was kind of fun. <laughs> it was a long time ago. I had hair and a ponytail, so it shows you how long ago. I did too. That was lost yeah, a long time yeah. ago. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, do you know what? The, the thing for me is when I moved to London, and I was so I was paying for private lessons. But again, I wasn't studying the instrument because I knew how to play, but I was studying harmony, advanced harmony, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I was doing jazz gigs. So all of a sudden my, my, my income, you know, from what I, what I was doing in the previous eight or nine years, earning great money, all of a sudden right. it just went. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, it's hard. It always has been hard to make money playing jazz, which yeah. is sad, but it's, yeah. you know, and, and then you know, whatever money I'm earning, I'm spending it on studying jazz with, with, mm -hmm. but anyway, um, and I actually studied with a fantastic American jazz double bass player called Michael Moore, hmm. uh, not to be mixed up with the, the TV. Right. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. I, I think Michael Moore is still with us. I certainly hope he is. Um, uh, his last gig was playing with Dave Brubeck. Wow. So yeah, that's no that's no joke. <laughs> yeah, he's an amazing player. So he he awesome. lived in London for a while. So I, I he helped a lot and he encouraged me to spend some time at the piano because he played piano himself. Mm -hmm. And he said that's really important for, for bass players, you know, for the harmonic knowledge. Yeah, it really opens up your your yeah. your perception of things, right? Yeah. So but so I but I was really skint. You know, I was not earning a lot of money at all and then mm -hmm. so i was doing jazz gigs and one of the guys i was playing with was a saxophone player a guy called phil Vcock, and uh and we would get together with some friends and we would do gigs but then we'd, we'd get together in one of our homes and we just play jazz records all day you know uh, we fun. were all just such, such, such keen to be jazz musicians that we just put on these albums all day and listen and i'd go home and i'd transcribe stuff yeah I'd, you know. that's awesome that's a, it's, it's, it's fun to have like a crew yeah. that you're hanging with that's in the same space right absolutely yeah we had this little jazz gang you know um and then <laughs> but what happened is that phil was already doing some gigs with jules holland now i knew jules holland from being the piano player the keyboard player in squeeze Right, which was a huge band. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, and, and, and as a kid, I used to buy Squeeze records. Oh, I fun. used to go buy the singles. And also Jules, was uh, he co-presented a TV show in the, in the mm. 80s uh, with Paula Yates, who was married to, to Bob Geldof. Uh, right. And it was called yeah. The Tube. And it was like, I guess <laughs> okay. it was like a precursor to later with Jules Holland. It was mm -hmm. a live music show. And I learned a lot of how to play the bass from watching that TV show because there were so many bands on. I'd be yeah, Jules, I mean, Jules is a great, like I, what I really like about him and that show and the later show um, is that he's a great player. And he, I know he has a big love for like American music, for R&B, soul, and he's great at it too, as you guys all are. Oh, thank you. And, and he's very knowledgeable. You know, he does... He 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 really knows the background of, of all of that stuff. 
which which mm. is uh, is quite unusual for a TV. Yeah, it, it adds a different a different level than just a, yeah. just having a performance show. Exactly. Now, when um, when Phil said he was working with him, I because I, I hadn't heard of Jules for, for years. Ah. I you know he'd gone off the radar. He hadn't been on TV, and mm -hmm. I said, "Well, what's happening with him?" And he sort of said, "Well, you know, he he we went back and forth with Squeeze. He kept joining and leaving them, whatever, uh, and this." This time, you know, Jules had left Squeeze for good. That was it. He wanted to go solo and do his own thing. And he didn't mm. want to play pop music or rock music anymore. He wanted to play blues, R&B, that kind of thing. Yeah, the stuff that he really had a passion for. Exactly. Yeah. So he'd already got together a bunch of musicians. He'd, he'd gone out in southeast London to a pub. Uh, and I think he'd seen <laughs> the rehearsal big band uh, playing in this pub. And he'd, he'd cherry-picked a couple of guys. So at that time, he couldn't afford to hire a full big band right but he cherry picked like a tenor player you know a, a trumpet player trombone player whatever so it was almost him quite kind of quietly doing an audition <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly exactly that which so, is which is a good which is a good lesson for musicians because you never know who's that could be the one guy sitting in the audience right well you know go briefly going back to dave holland you know the the, the guy the, the famous jazz mm -hmm. player from my hometown of Wolverhampton. At the, that's a great story with him i yeah. mean he, he was doing a gig in ronnie scott's and miles davis walks in is at the back of the room likes what he hears you know and then yeah. he gets the Miles Davis gig, you know, I mean, is, is the shortened version of it, you know, but right, you, know, yeah. you never know who's there. So anyway, what happened is that uh, Jules had been using the, uh, the the fabulous Pino Palladino on bass, which I know everyone's heard of. Yep, no, um, no, no slouch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and in fact, when Pino moved from Wales to London, I believe his very first gig was with Jules Holland. Uh, oh, okay. Jules had a band called Jules Holland, Jules Holland and his Millionaires. Uh. Pino was the bass player in that. Now, so see, Pino had been doing some gigs and it was a small band. It was like a five piece rhythm section and four horns. But mm. they'd just been doing like really small, low key gigs, nothing at all. So at this point, Jules didn't have the TV, the radio show, anything like that. Right. He's um, just sort of putting his, his, his putting his whole thing together. Yes. The beginnings of it. Right? Very early stages. But then, of course, Pino was getting more and more noticed by people. Uh, mm -hmm. And so he was he'd be doing stuff with Jules and then Gary Newman wanted him and then Paul Young. blah blah blah, uh, And he got to the point where he just he knew that that was his way. That's what he had to do. He had to go out and play with all these people. Sure. So this left Jules without a basis. Now he then started to because so Squeeze at the time, Jules's old band, were on a break, so to speak. So Jules was using the bass player Keith Wilkinson hmm. from Squeeze, and he was using Gilson Lavis, the drummer from Squeeze. Oh, okay. So that was that was the Jules Holland band. That thing. Yeah. And then what happened? Uh, Squeeze reformed again. <laughs> And, I know uh, there's, I know, and I've heard, I mean, I, I remember there was a, um, I think it was VH1 behind the music yeah. with, with Jules. And there was a whole while he kind of went into that whole history of, of that, but that Squeeze was a great band. But anyway, oh, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was with them for, I did one gig with them. I was an honorary member of Squeeze for one night, uh, you know, years and years ago, but uh, nice. I, I love their music. But anyway, yeah. what happened is Squeeze got back together again. Now the, the drummer and the bass player had to make a choice. Do we, do we stick with Jules on this brand new fledgling solo career? Or do we mm -hmm. go back with a band that we've always known that right. we, we know what, what's going on there? You know, he can work and yeah. it's going to get booked. And yeah. So they chose to go with Squeeze. So this opened up the bass and drum chair with Jules Holland. And that's where I came in. So this sax player that I've been doing 
jazz gigs with said, Jules needs a bass player. I thought I'd put your name forward. And especially because he wanted someone who played uh, upright right. bass. Double bass and yeah. electric. He'd only he'd only used bass guitarists, and he was really keen now to have a double bass player. So I said, "Yeah, sure, you know." But I was very I was very carefree about it because Jules Holland back then, this was 1991, wasn't the Jules Holland that we know now. Right. Yeah, he was sort of a guy from a pop band, and he's kind yeah. of figuring out what he wants to do. Yeah, and... Exactly that. So so I went along to his studio, which is five minutes from where I live here in South London. And there was Jules and the guitarist and we just played, I got my double bass out. We played for an hour, just, just busting awesome. down and whatever. And then, um, and again, I was very casual, very just, yeah, whatever, you know, let's, um, yeah. I mean, I was still doing a good job, but I wasn't like, you know, yeah, you weren't, you weren't like the, like I'm auditioning for a huge star. Yeah, kind of. yeah, yeah, exactly that. You know? So, I mean, for instance, if I, if, if, if you were auditioning for Jules Holland now, It'd be a very it's, different thing. Because, right, it's a lot more pressure. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, there's a lot more going on. And, and you'd know, if you if you audition now, you'd realize that what you're stepping into. Whereas back then, right. it was like, yeah, whatever, you know. So yeah. at the end of me playing, Jules said, oh, it's really great. You know, we, we love your playing, but we do have other people to see. And I remember thinking at the time, that sounds like someone kind of going like, yeah, like, oh, blimey, whatever. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, um, so, thank you. We'll, we'll call you. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm putting the bass away really casually, and him and the guitarist go outside, and they come back after a few minutes, and Jules went, oh, look, just, the gig's yours, you know, to, you know, to hell with it. Oh, awesome, yeah. So I, never, I, think, I think the thing is, somebody like that, who's that experienced, like, they know, like, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they, they hear somebody, or like you know, what he said, we went to the club and he's looking for guys, and like he knows, he knows what's up. Exactly. I mean, I'm still not sure exactly what the conversation was that they had outside. So it was probably like, he's really tall. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> well, and actually, what's kind of well, kind of funny about that too is, of course, Pino is is a very oh yeah, P- Pino is actually a, a little taller than I am, you know. Oh, um, yeah. You know, so so yeah, I mean, it's a good job that Jules Jules wasn't heightest. Yes. So that was it. That's and funny. Jules gave me a, a carrier bag full of cassette tapes of, ah, of gigs okay. and rehearsals and, uh, and whatever. Sure. And he just said, yeah, just learn all this stuff, you know. Um, and again, I remember thinking, okay, you know, that that's cool. But it wasn't like, oh my God, like that. because yeah. again, he wasn't who he is now. And then that was 91. And then we, we just were doing very low key gigs. So we were doing like uh, college college gigs, summer balls, you know, small sure. clubs, very, very low key and stuff. And then the following year, 92, I don't know how it came about, but the BBC contacted Jules and said, listen, we want to do a late night live music TV show. We want you to host it. Wow. Uh, so, you know, so that was, that was the first thing. And all of a sudden we're getting called up to play on TV with, you know, Vince Gill, John Prine, Mary Chapin, Carpenter, right. uh, George Benson. I'm kind of going... You know, the thing about that is because in, in the States, of course, well, even back then, there wasn't really that many TV channels. But in London or in England, the BBC kind of rules, especially then, right? It was like the BBC channels, everybody was watching the BBC on a Saturday night, I would think, at that point. Well, we had the prior to that, we had the old grey whistle tests. You know, we, sure. had, we had Top of the Pops as well, but we had the old Grey Whistle Test, which was also... Which are both great shows. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and obviously it was very different in the fact that it was just... Bob Harris chatting to the audience and then be a band. There wouldn't be any audience. Sorry, chatting to the 
um, yeah, he, he's speaking to the camera and then there's just the band. So there's no audience. In yeah, the room. right. It was with a different setup. Yeah. yeah, it was a different thing. So, but it was such a weird thing, getting a phone call saying, we need you to come in to play for George Benson. And we need you to play. Yeah. And the, the irony was that when I, when I'd been a, a freelance musician, or say on the cruise ships, I've, I've been playing the music of George Benson, of Shaka Khan, of yep. Algera. I've been, but all of you're playing, you're playing the hits and then all that, all the fun stuff, right? Yeah, but but now I'm playing for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, it's funny because I've had I, I had that experience. I um I grew up in L.A. watching you know Frankie Avalon movies and, and all the beach movies, and then all of a sudden one day I'm on stage with them and I'm like. How did this happen? It was kind uh, of a yeah. weird thing. I still but, love, uh, um, well, I mean, I, I love the film Grease, you know, and the uh, beauty school yeah. dropout. Yeah, yeah. Cool all that movie. stuff. And it's, you know, that, I mean, that era is just, it's great. Yeah. It's just fun music. Um, and with, with, with Jules, the TV show, I mean, I, we actually, I started watching that when I lived in Tokyo with Cirque. Um, I, I guess, I don't know now, like uh, 12 years ago, whatever, but I was like, man, what a great show. I mean, it, what I like about it is everything's live. There's no, there's no lip syncing. There's none of that that I've ever noticed. Um, and obviously you guys are great. You guys get a chance to back up um, a long, huge list of stars. Who's some of the favorites that you, I know we've talked about that a little bit, but who are some of the ones that come to mind when you think of like, that was a great moment? Yeah. Well, I, I guess it's, it's a lot to do with who I grew up listening to and who I, who I loved listening to when I was a kid. So um you know, I, I was definitely, when I was a trombone player, because I was playing in all different kinds of bands, like I was playing in, in orchestras, brass bands, um, wind bands, but I was playing in funk bands and, and jazz orchestras and stuff. So I was playing a lot of stuff, but, you know, one band I played in, we, we used to do a lot of like Earthman and Fire type stuff. So Black American mm. funk music. Yeah, was, that's for a bass player. It's like yeah, gold. Exactly that. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, so for me as a trombonist, as well as a bass player. Right, so anyway, sure. So one of my favorites was was always Shaka Khan, you know, and, and not only did I love her voice, but because I'm a huge Anthony Jackson fan yep. who played bass on a lot of those. Hits. Legendary, legendary bass yeah. player. So, um, so, you know, I had all of her albums. So all of a sudden in the mid nineties, when we got called to play with her on TV, uh, in fact, it's it's strange because the, the two songs that we did with her, Anthony wasn't on them. So one was Ain't Nobody, um, and the other one was I'm Every Woman. Yeah. Well, I'm I mean, Every Woman is Will who, Lee. Who doesn't, who doesn't love to play those two? Yeah, movies? exactly. <laughs> um, so, and I got to play with it. And I remember thinking, you know, it really doesn't get any better than this. You know, this is someone mm. in who I've had all her albums, listened to her my adult life. And here I am on a TV show playing these classic things with her. So, so definitely her. Um, George Benson is another one we, we did on Broadway with him on Jules' show. Yeah. And, yeah it's beautiful yeah and i and he was such a lovely guy as well he was such a, a sweet man so that was very special um al Giro is another big favorite of mine when i was working on the cruise ships in the 80s i would just put on al Giro cassette tapes every day all yeah. day because it's such it was such uplifting music but just he's he's i mean with him i mean he was he's just a it was like a, a musical force, oh. <laughs> like, but way beyond just being a singer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and he was just so versatile as well. You know, he, he could do so much stuff and um, yeah, get, getting, he, he did the radio show first. He did Jules' BBC radio show, which the radio show came after the TV show. What, what's the actual name of that show? Um, I, do you know what? I, I'm not sure if it, it 
it kind of it's probably morphed a little bit over the years but yeah i, I think it just might be called jules holland's radio two show or something like that is it on a, which which bbc channel is that on so it's a, it's a bbc radio show and it's on radio two okay cool you know, um but I, I, I know there i know there everybody knows but just so that yeah <laughs> it's probably just called the jules holland show or something like that yeah it's sure not like yeah. there was a tv thing he specifically later with, with right the yeah it's a sort of a different animal a yeah different so, um, so yeah playing with al was was super special because again the, these were my heroes from when i was 19 2021 20, now if someone mm-hmm. would have said to me when i was working on those cruise ships l- listening to shaka george and, and al Jiro, if someone had said like in 10 years time, you're going to be playing with all of these and so many more, you know, you'd have gone, what are you talking about? You know, what's great about that is that, you know, that's the one thing that's so uh, great about music is you just never know. And I mean, and if you're a good player and you work hard, people will notice you and they recommend you and, and, and all that kind of thing. Well, and I know, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's, that's, sorry, forgive me for interrupting, but there was a great no, okay. thing that, um, that I always like to quote a lot. And it, it's the, the harder you work, the luckier you get. That's exactly right. Yep. Um, t- tell me about, I know some of the other people I, I actually have, it's a very long list <laughs> folks you guys have backed up and not only backed up, but obviously that have been on the show, but I'm, I'm Paul McCartney is one that really stuck out. And there's a great photo of him singing and you're in the background. It's like, yeah. oh my God, that's, you know. <laughs> that was fun. Well, we, we'd already, I'd already met George Harrison and Ringo. So we'd, I'd already worked with those guys. And in fact, with George Harrison, he'd invited Jules and the band to his 50th birthday party. Oh, awesome. In the early 90s. Uh, and we went to a place called Port Merion in Wales because Jules was interviewing the, 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 the remaining Beatles for the Beatles anthology. Mm. And it was, it was, uh, George's turn to be interviewed by Jules and uh, George said well listen why don't you come down we'll do the interview here stay the weekend and bring the band with you this is when it was a nine piece wow. so we, we got yeah. to spend the weekend with George Harrison on his 50th birthday party I'm hoping oh, amazing. There's some I'm hoping there's some photographs from that but so and also George Harrison appeared on one of our albums and it was his last ever recording it's it's on our know. first Jules Holland and Friends album. I think it's called Small mm. World Big Band, and the song's called Horse to the Water. Mm. And George wrote it for us. We actually got a demo cassette tape of George strumming on his guitar. Um, oh, amazing! And, and as far as I know, it was the last ever recording of George Harrison. So very very poignant. So yeah, and I worked with with Ringo. Uh, that's fun. But then Paul Paul McCartney came on George's radio show first. Uh, and whatever song we did, he was playing mandolin. So it was, he definitely wanted me to play bass on the radio. But then he came and did that TV show. Uh, and he did two songs. One was a duet with Kyla Minogue, where again, he was playing mandolin. But then he wanted to do Got To Get You Into My Life. Uh, How and then, fun. And in, in the rehearsal, he picked up a bass guitar. So I, I was playing upright at the time. And I just thought, well, I'll sit this one out. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, okay, I'll just watch, which got, is great too, right? <laughs> what am I doing? You know, sure. Um, and he and he saw me putting the bass. He said, "No, no, no, Dave." He said, "I, I, I want you to play." You know, I kind of, I, I want to, I want to play. And he said, and apart from anything else, he said, "There's a bit in the song that I always forget when it, where it changes." And he said, "I sure. need you to help cue me where that." bit of the song is and i'm uh, like chuckling to myself thinking hang on 
Paul McCartney. I'm, I'm going to give Paul McCartney a cue. Yeah. I mean, I thought they wrote this song and he's asking me for a cue, you know. And I said, yeah, that's that's great. You know, and obviously the upright and the electric, there's a slightly different vibe, you know. So so we, we, we did the recording and sure enough, if you and it's on YouTube, if you if you watch the recording, it's towards the end of the song. At one point, Paul turns round and look at me and I, I either raise my eyebrows or I nod or I do something. But really? it, yeah, it's me giving, <laughs> me giving Paul McCartney a cue on his own it's song. so funny, yeah. But yeah, he, he was, um, it's, you know, and obviously there's a lot going on there. There's the cameras, you know, there's a, and, and it was all done in very, it was very good natured and it was, it was yeah. fun. So yeah, it was a, it was a great honour doing that. And, and actually the, one of the more recent ones, which was very special, was playing with Paul Simon. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, I knew of him originally because both my brothers had Simon and Garfunkel albums. But sure. my, my middle brother had a fantastic Paul Simon solo album. And I think it was called There Goes Rhyming Simon. Oh, okay. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. I think it's there goes running so yeah and it's every song on there is an absolute gem it's it's got some and and me you know i used to sing along to that that album when i was a kid because the songs are so catchy so it's a brilliant brilliant record um so when we heard he was coming on the, the tv show i'm i was thinking wow that's so cool paul simon you know and obviously i i was familiar with him his more recent career mm -hmm. um and i thought that's great and then <laughs> when we got sent the track it, it was off his new album and the, the track was called wristband oh okay and i'm listening to it, i'm thinking to myself this is a this is like a bass feature you know the, oh cool the song it, it's it's on upright and it's it's mostly like a voice and bass feature there's hardly anything else in there there's a few wow. now normally on jules's show the stuff i get to play it's not very flamboyant it's not yeah. very technically demanding because you're playing popular music. Right, a lot of pop stuff. Yeah, we, we're sure. not playing high-octane jazz fusion or anything <laughs> like that, you know. Although well, he does have that on his show sometimes. <laughs> but, but, but the thing is, but this bass line, it wasn't technically difficult, but it just surprised me, the fact it was so hmm. bass-featured. I'd never had this before. So I went to the BBC for the day of the rehearsal. Uh, well, the day of the, the broadcast, we rehearsed with the artists only like a, a two hours before we recorded. You know, oh, interesting! It's very, very last minute. Yeah, well, what's what's your uh, what's I mean, uh, what's the sort of schedule for you guys? So you do like a couple hour rehearsal, then you do the show taping. If that's all within like a six hour thing, or... yeah, yeah. So we we usually sort of get the track the night before, you know, and, hmm. and we we just get either a CD in the post or they send it, uh, you know, as, as a link, an email link kind of thing. Sure. And we have to learn the song ourselves, so we very rarely okay. get presented with charts. Oh, interesting. Okay. I mean, we, you know, we had Andy Williams on the show once, yeah. uh, and I was thrilled about that because I used to watch the Andy Williams show when I was a kid. So, so he's he's he was quite a hero. But his MD unusually had charts. Now, here's the other thing: there's only myself and the horn players in Jules's band that read written notation. Oh, okay. The rest of the rhythm section don't read. So, a lot sure. of the time, if if an artist has like a some charts, it's not of a great deal of use other than to me and any mm. horn players so what they what we tend to do now is we just as a, as a great leveler for the whole thing we just all learn it from you know direct from the track kind of thing but the first yeah. thing that i always do and i always have done is i do a transcription of every baseline 
that I, oh, okay. that I had to play. So yeah, because you want to make sure you're accurate, and especially for really well known. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and again, it goes back to not being a very good student at school. And, and so now, when I do this, I want to be the best. Yeah, you know, it's almost like if I could go back in time to be sit in the classroom as opposed to be the kid at the back that says, "Don't pick me, don't pick me." I'd be the kid <laughs> sitting at the front with my arm up, kind of going. Ask me, please, please, miss. Ask me, you know. But you know, Dave, that that's exactly why you've been so successful is because of that. Because you've you've sought out the knowledge and you've forced yourself out of the safety zone, right? Uh, yeah, and that's that's such a good lesson, I think. Well, Jules always calls me the you know the well doesn't always call it, but he has called me the the detail guy, you know. Because the thing is, I I'm very meticulous with my transcriptions. Um, you know, and, and I've got loads, I've got every baseline I've ever played for any artist in these folders in my attic. I've got thousands of them. Ah, amazing. Yeah. And I write the date and when it was, who the artist was. But Yeah. And they're great. They're also, I mean, besides just being charts, they're great memories, right? Yeah, exactly that. And also when you, when you end up playing with these guys again, further down the line, as opposed to learning it all from scratch, I just whip the chart out and whatever, you know, now it's sure. time I'll always make an effort to learn the part off by heart. You know, I don't always want to have a, a piece of paper stuck in front of me, but sometimes depends on, on the complexity of the part and the, and the amount of time we have. Sometimes right. I will have the chart with me on, on the TV show. Kind of so, so when you, when you did the, I'm going to get back to Paul Simon, cause I, I kind of got knocked you off track. Yeah. I, <laughs> um, so when you did the Paul Simon thing, you're, were you nervous with that? Or, I mean, obviously he was a sort of a hero for you musically. So, well, do you know what it was? There was definitely a different kind of pressure for me on that because normally when we when I do the TV show, by default I get stuck at the back because yeah. being the tallest one and playing <laughs> double bass, you know. Uh, but you know what the good thing is, you're always right behind Jules, so everybody yeah, always sees you on camera. <laughs> but I, but the producer, you know, because there's always like a nice backdrop on the TV show, and our yeah. producer Janet, she always comes along, and and she, you know, it's it's a, it's a it's an in joke, really. It's uh, she looks at me and she looks at me spoiling the the backdrop, you know, sticking out so high above, you know. And she's kind of going, "Oh no, can, you know, can we get him to sit down, lie down? Can you just kneel down a little bit?" Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, but with this one, when, when I turned up and I by default I went to stand at the back, and she went, "No, no, no, you you've got to stand at the front because oh, okay. it's such a big, prominent base." Uh, part so they put me right next to Paul uh, Paul Simon we're, oh, we're standing right next to each other um, and this for me was like so I mean I guess I, th there was a little bit of um, it was a different feeling I, I was a little probably a bit more nervous than well not nervous but I, I was just very aware there was more at stake here sure yeah your, your friends because, yeah the, the camera is going to be on me all the time <laughs> You know, there's, <laughs> there's going to be no hiding in the background. Um, but do you know what? It was great fun. And we, you know, we, we ran through the track and, uh, and in between rehearsal, because you have to like rehearse the song with the artist and then you have to do it again for the lighting people. Then you have to do it for the sound guys, you know. So it's not when we do multiple run throughs, it's not just for, I mean, it always benefits us the more times we do it, but yeah. it's as much to do with whoever else is there. But in between each run through, he we would he because we and I was next to each other. We got to we got to chat a lot. Uh, we oh, wouldn't normally happen because I would normally be at the back, you know. Right. And, they, and he was asking about my bass because his father was a double bass player. He still has his father's bass in his office. Ah, interesting. But he was fascinated with, with 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 my instrument, and he was saying, 
you know, how old is it? Where was it made? Mm -hmm. He wanted to know all about it. And then we, we were talking about touring. He was telling me about how he, you know, it's how tough it is now, you know? And I said, listen, I, I'm, and I think I was what, 55, 54 at the time. And I said, it's tough for me as well. You know, it's kind of, it, it doesn't get any easier the older you get. Yeah, and I was actually going to say, so in, in Jules, besides doing the TV show, he actually tours quite a bit, right? Yeah, I mean, we, not only in the UK, but I mean, he goes kind of everywhere. I mean, we, we've done a couple of world tours in the past, uh, and we do a lot of stuff in Europe. But yeah, we always do two big tours in the UK. We do like a three-month tour in the summer and a three-month one in the winter. And then in between that is the TV and the radio shows. Um, mm. And we would do some some private gigs as well, but obviously that's... That's changed a lot, but um, but yeah, that was, yeah. Well, I, the one thing I must finish with the Paul the Paul Simon thing is every time we did the song, he did it differently. He would <laughs> he would move bars, he would take bars out, and he would add bars in. That's interesting, you know. Yeah. And because because I'm trying to do this particular riff, it's quite a set thing, and he's shifting the bars and. and <laughs> And I'm just. And, and, he was like, "Hey, Paul, you're you're messing up the song." No, yeah, it's, yeah. I, I, I literally had to because a lot of the time it's like a two-bar phrase. Sure. Um, and, and I had to kind of repeat. You had to figure out how to how to land back on the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, you had to repeat certain bars or complete mm -hmm. this and that. But he literally every single time was different. How funny! And I'm thinking, wow, you know, uh, you know, this is, you know. You, you really have to have your wits about you because like, a lot of the time you play this stuff and they want exactly what's on the record. Yeah. And they exactly. do what's on the record. But this, you know, he pulled, he was busking. He was busking, you know. <laughs> So, um, well, you know, you know what's, what's, what's actually great about that is he obviously felt comfortable with you that he could do yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you think, and you've just got to do it. Man. I, you know, there's, you've got to have good ears. That's the thing with this, mm -hmm. this industry. Now, ironically, when I started out as a musician, my strength was my reading skills. Right. You know, that's what got me a ton of work to begin with. Sure. Because at the time, though, particularly with bass players, there weren't many that could read. And with trombone, I used to have to read four clefs, you know, bass, tenor, alto, and, and treble clefs. So yeah. there was nothing that I couldn't read on bass that I could already plan. Yeah, I actually used to, I used to use trombone books to practice reading, trombone yeah. and cello, both, just for the, the ear, right? Sure. Doing some classical stuff. It's, it's fun to kind of knock yourself out of the, the pop stuff. Well, yeah, yeah, and especially early on, there was a lot more trombone books available than there were bass books. I mean, all, all I had was the couple of Carol K books to begin with, which- Yeah, were and this is way before YouTube. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but what with me, I realized as I got older, if I want to be successful and to get more work, you know, you know, you you need to you need to work on these things. <laughs> you know, they're they're as important. So so when Paul was doing this and he was changing the bars around, I just had to do this. You know, I had to move with it every time. And I I, I, always, I always say it's a little bit like surfing, right? You have to like kind of catch the groove Absolutely. and figure out. <laughs> you know, and, and it was and I was surprised because I just I just thought it was going to be as the record and that's what i transcribed and that's what i've got in my head but it just shows you there the goalposts are always moving so but he, he was lovely and it was a great thing and, and a lot of people saw that and it was the first time a lot of people became aware of my bass playing because they'd seen a lot of other videos and sometimes you can't hear the bass that well or sometimes the bass part isn't that prominent but with that one because it's so out front and high in the mix and it's basically just voice and bass a lot of people contacted me and said oh we saw that we loved your playing so it kind of put me on on the map a little bit more 
Yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, those are my favorite ones. I mean, we we played with Smokey Robinson as well, which was very cool. Um, And that day with Smokey, our guitarist couldn't make it. So we had to get a Depp guitarist and Jules got Eric Clapton. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a pretty good one. Yeah, well, Jules, <laughs> Jules called me up and he said, "Listen, you know, our guitarist can't do it. Can you recommend anybody?" And I'm kind of saying, "Well, I can, but I know how how fussy Jules is, and if I pick the wrong guy, yeah, you're gonna you're never gonna I'm, hear the end." Of it. <laughs> I, said, I, I I'd be happier if you made the decision. So he came back to me. He said, "Look," he said, "I've called everyone." He said. You know, I'm really scraping the barrel. He said, I've, you know, I've, I managed to get Eric Clapton. I hope that's okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, How funny. I think he'll do. Uh, and what was bizarre about that day is we, I'm sitting with Eric because he wanted to sit down. Normally we all stand up on that. And so we're sitting next to each other. And it was a bit like the day with Paul Simon. I got to chat with Eric a lot more. I'd worked with him mm. quite a few times, but yeah. the day we got to chat a lot more together. And then we were told that uh, Smokey Robinson was not going to be rehearsing with us because he ah. might have got in late and sure. he wanted to rest. So they said the first time you're going to see him is when he walks on to the, the TV floor. Yeah, he's, then, he's, he's such a pro. Oh, though. yeah. <laughs> but, but Eric looked to me and he went, are they kidding? And I said, I said, welcome to my you just world. You just freaked out Eric Clapton. That's not easy. Yeah, to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing with Eric, I mean, you know, and he, he plays beautifully. He does a great solo in that. And, um, yeah. and he is a wonderful guy and a, a good friend. But I, I suppose from his point of view, where he's used to rehearsing for days, weeks, months, mm-hmm. for anything he does. And all of a sudden, there is no rehearsal for this. You know, we are going to be playing with Smokey Robinson. And you're going to be on national TV. <laughs> and national TV, yeah. And I just said, you know, welcome to my world. This is this is what it's like. So that's right. We, we ran through the song. And it was, um, you know, when Nora Jones had a hit with it, it was called Don't Know Why. Yeah, that's a great song. I, I can't remember who wrote it, but she had the big hit with it. And that's what Smokey wanted to do. So, yeah, if you, it's, it's actually, it's not on YouTube. I think they took it down. I think there was a copyright issue with it. But mm. it's, it's funny because you, you can see me sitting next to Eric and Eric's doing this solo and I'm looking at him and I've just got this grin <laughs> that extends up here, you know, because I'm sitting there playing bass with Eric and Smokey yeah. Robinson. And again, you have those moments of... Yeah, it's one of those sort of pinch me moments, right? Yeah, you know, how did this happen? You know, how, you know, from, from being back at school and being given a euphonium and saying, this isn't for me, you know, how do I end up here? How is this? Sure. And, it, and it's wonderful. It's, it's... Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, again, like that's the magic of music, right? It brings, also bringing people together that you would never normally think would actually mix together. Eric Clapton and Smokey Robinson. Yeah. But of course, Eric's a soulful guy. I mean, he's a soulful player. And I'm sure he loved it. He grew up listening to that music too, right? So he, yeah. I'm sure he loves it. And it's, um, obviously as well, a lot of it is to do with, because, you know, you can say to people, and, and you should always work hard at your craft. I mean, that's the most mm-hmm. important thing. I mean, even now, I get the most satisfaction from, from practicing, you know, hearing, mm-hmm. hearing improvement in my own playing, studying, transcribing, all that stuff, you know. Um, but there is an element of timing, luck, mm-hmm. serendipity with this industry. You know, yeah, there's yeah. definitely, but like you said, hard work sort of helps the luck, right? Yeah. <laughs> sort of helps it happen. So yeah, so, so yeah, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Because, you know, mm-hmm. you have to be out there. You have to be seen to be doing stuff. You have to be, you know, people need to know who you are and what you're doing. But the thing for me is I I sometimes get younger players and they come to me and they, they see what I've achieved in my career. And they say, 
how do you get endorsements? How do you get on the front cover of a magazine? How do you get interviews and stuff? And I'm thinking, you're asking all the wrong questions. You yeah. know what I mean? Because I, I didn't ask for any of those things. Yeah. You know, when I, when I, started, I was on TV with Jules for four years before I got a single endorsement. I was on TV playing with Shaka and all these people. And sure. I was playing like an old Fender Jazz. I was buying my own strings. I was buying my own picks, amps, everything. And someone was, they were flicking the channels one night. And we were on this TV show with, with, with Shaka. Then we were on Later with Jules. We'd done another TV show, like on a separate channel. And this, and this my friend was saying, I, I can't get rid of you. In every channel. You're everywhere. <laughs> you're, you're there playing bass, you know. And I said, I'm yeah, that's amazing. I said, I can't apologize enough. But he said to me at the time, this was the mid-90s, he said, you must have endorsements coming out your ears. And I said to him, what, what's an endorsement? Oh, wow. Said, you know, yeah. And I've been on TV for five years because it wasn't a priority. What the priority was, was this. Yeah, you're doing the work, right? Yeah. You're not really focused on, yeah. yeah. And I mean, that, that's the thing, because I mean, I, we, we've talked a lot about the endorsement thing and you have some great companies that you're working with now. Um, Ibanez is one of them that's been awesome with you. And we're both Ibanez fans. I had one back in the 80s that I loved. Um, but the thing about that is like, yeah, you have to do the work first and you got to put yeah. in the, the time. Yeah. And if you do that, those companies will notice you. I mean, you, of course, you it's good to reach out to them, but th that's, uh, you know, and that's gotten more, even more challenging, I think, within recent years. But yeah. Well, it was, it was but, great with, with Ibanez because what happened is I... I started to collect basses, which I never intended to do that, but at some point- Yeah, you have a huge bass collection, yeah. I should mention. <laughs> I mean, I, I, to be honest, I still don't know how many I have, but it's it's probably around about a hundred or something like that. Wow. But, but yeah, in the, um, about six, seven years ago, a friend of mine sold me a fretless Ibanez musician, like from the mm -hmm. early eighties. And I didn't, you know, I didn't really have any Ibanez instruments. They, they'd gone under the radar for me. So, and I got it and I, and I just thought this is so beautiful, but then I played it and I thought, this is one of the best instruments I've ever played. So I started to collect vintage Ibanez basses and then it got a little out of hand. You know, I must have like 50 of them at least, I guess, 50 or 60. Yeah, it's funny because you post those photos on like, oh my God, I want that. Yeah, <laughs> especially especially the newer instruments that they're making are just stunning. Like yeah, amazing. Yeah, well, what, it's, it's so weird how it happened because um, the last time I did an interview for Bass Guitar Magazine, uh, they put me and Jules on the front cover. Uh, and I'm holding one of those polar white Ibanez mm -hmm. musician basses. From this yeah, it's one of the ones I used to have. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love those. My favorite four string basses they are. So I'm holding that. And then Ibanez saw the magazine and they just said, wow, we love the fact that you, because obviously back in the old days, Sting was very well known for you mm -hmm. Ibanez when he was with the police. I think Adam Clayton from U2 was a, was a big Ibanez user. I think even Phil Linnett from in Lizzie Clayton right. but but since then no one's really been associated with them and they saw me with it and they mm -hmm. said well we love the fact you've drawn attention to our instruments and they said would you like to try some of the modern instruments out and I also said well to be honest I'm really happy with with what I've got having said that they were all four strings my vintage ones sure so I went to Ibanez UK and they started to bring out these BTBs which I post so much about on yeah the, they're so great you know yeah. and I said you know I really want like a six string or two and they bought them out and and I was completely knocked knocked out with with the quality of the and a BTB with Ibanez apparently it stands for boutique bass 
is what BTB means. Uh, and I just said, well, where, where have you been keeping these? Because I, I go into high street shops <laughs> and I'm not seeing any of these high-end Ibanez. I'm just seeing the, the student entry. Right, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, you know, they're, they, this, this is there, this is what they're like, you know. So I, I that's it. I, and I just started to, to, to use the modern day Ibanez BTB six strings. And I, I use some of the SR ones as well. And I still play my vintage ones, but, but yeah, the, 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 the new, the BTB six string Ibanez, I, I, I love them. And they're my, my main gigging basses now. Yeah. They're, I mean, the thing I like about the, um, that, that series actually too, is the necks are great on them. And, and uh, the oftentimes with the six strings for me, the necks have been like cumbersome, huge. Yeah. And that, that's actually a super comfortable bass to play. Um, yeah. And I, I've actually, I'm, I'm, talking to them about some some of their headless stuff too which is also pretty amazing cool. yeah i mean um, they, they are known uh, if that, yeah I, yeah i mean here, here's mine um i've just been working on on the songs for our new year's eve tv show right uh, i was gonna ask you about that I, I, yeah i i can't I, I can't mention the people who are on it because one well i'll get in trouble but two the show might get cancelled so um yeah so that then that's actually his uh it's the hootenanny right that's right, yeah. So that the Hootenanny started in, it started a year after the TV show. So I joined Jules 91, the TV show later with Jules Holland started in 92, and the Hootenanny started in 93. And that's, that's like the, basically the New Year's, New Year's Eve show, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, ex- exactly that. So, uh, hmm. but yeah, so yeah, that's that's the latest one. So that's the... Yeah, that's, yeah, that's amazing. That, that's the headless one. But yeah, it's... How gorgeous. And their, their neck is like super comfortable. It's very flat. It's got a quite yeah. flat, which which I, which I really like, you know. Um, but yeah, I've just been using this to to work on the side. I'm not sure which base I'm going to use on the show yet because that's the other tricky thing that there's so much varied stuff that we have to play on Jules' show. Do you have a Do you have a lot of bases there at the at, no, at the studio? No, or? And that that's a good point because. Um, there isn't the space, and to be honest, if the show does go ahead this year, which it's due to do, we're going to mm-hmm. have even less space because of the the, the distance. Yeah, the, the, the social distancing. Yeah, and, yeah, that's. I mean, that's a really obviously the whole COVID thing has been really challenging, and I'm sure it's it's obviously it's messed with your schedule as it has with mine. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, well, we we lost. Um, yeah, we lost the summer tour with Jules. Um, that went. Although I was actually really busy this summer because I was. I was in a lockdown band. Yeah, you were actually at, you were in a house, right, or sort of a, sort of a mansion, I, living, I guess. Yeah, I was living in two stately homes in um, very nice in Norfolk, uh, hmm. in the east of England. And yeah, it was uh, with a, a guitarist friend called Todd Sharpville, and he just decided that he didn't want to spend the whole summer in his London flat. So he just before lockdown, the original one, he got together a bunch of musicians like. Him, him on guitar, me on bass, drummer, and a keyboard player. We all got privately COVID tested. Oh, okay. Which is all paid for. And then, yeah, we, we moved into this stately home in in, uh, in Norfolk. We we went, we, we lived in two different ones. And yeah, and we basically rehearsed, learned songs. We broadcast every Saturday night. We ended That's up amazing. recording a couple of tracks with some very famous pop people. But again, I'm unfortunately not allowed to say who they were, but they're, they're household name pop people because yeah. they heard awesome. what we were doing and they, we did remote recording. They were in LA. Yeah. They, they probably, they were probably itching to, to get out and do something too. Right. Just yeah. to do some kind of music. So, and-, so, and it was great fun. And, and uh, eventually Lucy and Oscar came to join me, you know, and it was great living in this beautiful big house with these 
the last place we stayed at was called Vowood and it's got these beautiful big gardens. But yeah, the main thing is that we were making music yeah. the whole time. So actually I had a really, I had a really busy summer perversely, but uh, normally, well, that's... you know, I'd be out. Yeah, that's great. Um, tell me, uh, you know, uh, Lucy, um, your wife. Yeah. Um, so how long have you guys, you've been married now for how many years? Uh, we, we, last year, in fact, we we, yeah. we had our first wedding anniversary at the at the stately home. We were, we were okay. in Bowood. So, yeah, we, we got married last August. Awesome. Yeah, she. I mean, she's a, a beautiful girl and she yeah. has an amazing voice. Um, and she has, actually hasn't been singing professionally for very long, right? No, not at all. I mean, we met five years ago, and I think she she wasn't at all a professional singer. She just did it mm. for fun. I think she she had gone to one of those, uh, you know, performing arts schools, but not as a full-time student, just as a weekend. Okay. So she'd done a bit of acting and a little bit of singing, but nothing at all remotely professional. And when we first met five years ago, we got chatting about music, and, uh, you know, I didn't tell her what I did. I told her I was a musician, but I didn't tell her I played with Jules. Uh, because, yeah, the show and everything. Yeah, I thought, let her discover that on her own. So uh, <laughs> I do want to put her on. <laughs> but, you know, she started to sort of read out all of these jazz greats like uh, Carmen mm. McRae, Nina Simone, Sarah Vaughan, Julie London. I'm saying, you know, because at the time, Lucy was 19. She's, she's you know, a lot younger than I am. Um, yeah. And I said, how do you know? You, 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 mar you married well, Dave. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, uh, yeah, it was worth the wait. And um, yeah, so she, she, that, that's her stuff. She's like an old soul, really. I mean, she, she's just turned 24. She has a stunning voice. Thank I mean, I, I, you guys were putting the videos out. That's part of how you sort of introduced her singing. And I, you were doing the bass and vocal videos. Yeah, and I was and that like, was just fun. That was just fun here at home. And um, yeah, yeah and, and it got a great response. And then people started to sort of book us. In fact, we've got a gig this coming Sunday. We're, oh, we're, awesome. we're doing a trio gig with our friend uh, Thomas Solomon Gray, who's a great piano mm. player. He was one of my best men at the wedding. But we've got a we've got a, a jazz gig on Sunday. But but yeah, she, but she was doing really well. She did her own uh, EP, uh, which uh, I think is called Sometimes I'm Happy. It's still out there, and I'm playing acoustic bass on that, and it, it's great. And she she she's writing her own stuff as well. Um, but yeah, we she um, she's performing as um, it's Lucy Marilyn, right? Yeah. So well, Marilyn is actually her middle name. Oh, okay. Uh, so so it's I think some people think that's her surname, but no, Marilyn yeah. is just a middle name. So just so so folk, folks can look her up. Yeah. So Lucy Marilyn, yeah, is her professional name and stuff. And uh, but yeah, we I think we're going to do some more of those duo videos just for fun. Uh, yeah. And actually, th this summer, um, well, last year I took up the guitar as well because. You know, I said to you when I studied with Michael Moore, you know, he said how important it is for bass players uh, or anyone who doesn't play a chordal instrument. You know, he said mm -hmm. how the importance of that, you know. So he yeah. said, whether it's piano or guitar, he said it's really worth doing it if you don't already play a chordal instrument. You know, it's a, you know, because for me, I, I, I've been playing trombone and bass, neither sure. one being technically chordal things. So. Um, but yeah, so I, I took up guitar last year, which I've been really getting into. But this summer, I also took up the tuba. <laughs> yeah, we talked about that. <laughs> yeah, you know, because uh, I always kind of fancy getting one. And I'm thinking more technically. It's a fun. It's such a fun sound. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> and, <laughs> you and the, you kind of, it kind of makes you like, oh, this is. This is oh, good. yeah. yeah. And, but you know what? There's some, you know, if, if you do the research, there's some really serious jazz because mm -hmm. most people just associate it with like an umpire band you know or right like yeah that. correct but if you look at there there's some guys playing funk 
uh, you know, and jazz and jazz. Yeah, the Dick, Dixieland stuff is really fun. Yeah, yeah, you know, so, and I thought to myself, well, technically it's, it is a bass instrument. Some people still call it a bass, you know, and I just thought, you know, I've got time on my hands. So add that to my working arsenal, you know, so we, we might even do some duo videos with me on, on the tuba as well. So yeah, that would yeah. be yeah, super fun. But she, yeah, she's just going from strength to strength. It's a shame actually that when, just before COVID, her career really was, yeah, this meteoric rock. Yeah, because you guys, you guys were actually working a lot in London and yeah. different places. Right? Yeah. She did her own show called "The Legendary Ladies of Jazz," hmm. uh, and it was, uh, yeah, with sort of bass, piano, and drums. And we we played a, a gig called the Crazy Cox in uh, in central London near Piccadilly Circus, and it was so well received. And her EP was going well. It literally was everything was going her way and then of course covid hit but sure. you know she like myself she likes to keep motivated she's still learning more songs she's adding to her repertoire yeah you know. that's i mean that's the thing like i think with the covid thing i mean that's part of the reason why i started the podcast series because i'm like you know i could sit here and be bored and do nothing or you can sort of reinvent yourself and yeah. find and find energy from a different place which is yeah kind of what i've been doing i guess but, well, but uh, also it, yeah the motivation thing it's important because I, I do know a lot of people that sadly have stopped performing you know they've made the decision <laughs> um they tended to be players that weren't necessarily pro pro players you know they were more semi-pros or whatever but mm -hmm. i just think if it's you know if, if it's what you've always done this in your blood you know you've yeah there's an obligation to, it. I mean, obviously you've got to survive. The most in, mm -hmm. important thing for anyone is, is survival. You've got to do whatever it takes, but um, you know, I mean, I've been doing sort of interviews and podcasts and I've been doing online teaching and stuff. Um, but yeah, for, for me, it's just a great opportunity to, to work on your craft even more, you know, mm -hmm. so that when the gigs do come back in, we're all, you, you hit the ground running, you know, and I, I'm yeah, not, exactly. I, it's difficult if you're, especially for us, because we're used to touring a lot. We, let's say, we do these two big tours, and you, you become quite institutionalized. You get very yeah. used to that, and when that's not there, and, yeah, you kind of get a little like I don't know what to do. Yeah, well, you, you, I guess like stir crazy is the kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it, it just it's everything is taken away from you. But you know, for me, I just think. I've always taken care of the craft first and foremost, you know, so, hmm. you know, I mean, I'm in my little music room here and I'm just surrounded by textbooks, uh, you know, CDs, all, all stuff to constantly work on, to keep, to keep motivated and to keep improving, you know, and, and that for me keeps me very buoyant. You know, yeah, I think, I mean, I think the thing is too, like, and I think we're the same because we talk a lot online and, and we both like to, I know you're also doing a lot of social media stuff, which is sort of part of the world we live in. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, I think that's the idea of never stop learning, which seems to, it's just so important. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, yeah, exactly. And if, if it's something that you're that passionate about, you almost can't stop yourself. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, because yeah, like, it's, part, it's part of your soul. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know. it's, I mean, it's, when people were on the news and they were talking about retraining and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, retrain, what, what on yeah. earth? Yeah, that's like I'm I'm fifty I'm fifty something years old. I've been doing this since I was. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, the only things that I really thought about doing for a living, I mean, I adored basketball. I still do, uh, mm -hmm. and I played it a little bit at school. Uh, so I just thought to myself, well, if anything, you know, I wanted to be a basketball player. So me me at fifty six retrained to be a pro basketball player. No, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, hey, you never know. Yeah, and, and, and you know and, and, I, and I loved old horror movies you know I, I'm one of my best friends is Sarah yeah you're a, you're a huge a huge horror fan yeah. that's that's yeah. 
So, yeah, one of my best friends is Sarah Karloff, who's the daughter of the legendary horror actor Boris Karloff, who used to play Frankenstein Monster, you know. So when I was a kid, I I used to love Boris and those old films. I was always trying to make myself look like one of those monsters. So, you know, like the the, the makeup guys, the prosthetic guys in in the movies, Mm -hmm. that's what I wanted to do as well when I was a kid. Ah. But even that, you know, retraining for someone like that at my age... (laughs) Forget yeah. it, you know. So really, I'm sticking with the music, and I'm just gonna, you know, just keep. Well, it, it's it's worked out okay for you, Dave. <laughs> it, it, it hasn't gone too badly so far. You know? Yeah, uh, and, and it's that's funny. and that's it's it's amazing that uh, that the longevity. So how, actually, the later shows how many years? It's been what twenty eight years or? Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. If it started, where where are we now? We're, we're 2020. So yeah, it started in 1992. It's amazing. Because, uh, you know, if you think about it, I'm sure you have thought about it, but there's really only a handful of musicians that have ever been able to do a TV show that long. I mean, Will Lee comes to mind from The Letterman. Yeah. But literally, I mean, there's there's literally probably this many guys. <laughs> People often used to, uh, and it was very flattering because, uh, you know, I know that Will is, is like just so such a world-class Amazing. Yeah, player. he's a he's a sweet. That's a really sweet guy too. Yeah, I, really I, super I, nice guy. I've I've never actually sort of met him, so I, I'd, I'd very much like to. But people did used to compare my gig to his. They they that was the most mm-hmm. similar thing they could find. And I guess of course, uh, yeah. I, and I guess the, the biggest difference was that he was on a chat show with a little bit of music, whereas I'm yeah, on exactly. a music show with a little bit of chat. <laughs> you know? Right. But yeah. Obviously, quite similar, but. But yeah, it, it's it, it's been great that show because it's it's made me. I mean, I like to think I was quite a versatile musician anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I played upright electric, I played trombone, uh, and I I played a lot of different stuff. But on Jules's show, it, it just broadened that. It just expanded that so much. Uh, the things I've had to be called upon to do, and and it, and it has definitely improved my musicianship. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's the great thing about him is he has such uh, a wide variety of tastes and, and you can really tell that he, like when he has the classic, a lot of the old blues guys and that kind of thing, you can tell that that's, it, that's his element. He like, he just loves that. You yeah. get the, you can really feel it, you know. I mean, it's a shame we don't have more jazz people on there, but to be honest with you, we, we have had, um, you know, McCoy Tyner. I was and, just watching that video. Yeah, yeah it was and, amazing. Uh, and Jimmy Cobb came on there. But um, it, in all honesty, it, the, the jazz thing on Jules' show doesn't always work that well because it is more of like, a, I guess, pop, for want of a better term, a popular music show. So it sure. definitely works if you've just, I mean, world music works, like African, yeah, you know, all kind of stuff. But sometimes with, if you get a hardcore jazz group on there, it's, it's a little kind of weird. It's kind of a bit like trying to fit like um, a square peg into a round hole kind of thing. It, it's sort of, I guess, it's sort of like the producers know that Jules loves that. So they, yeah. they kind of like, I mean, we're going we're gonna to go for it. But you know what? That's awesome that they actually do that because like you said, like the Africana thing, I mean, some of the, it's really a fun mix. Yeah. And that's actually what I love about the show. Like it's a really fun, interesting mix of sure. musicians and vibe and, you know. And, and also, um, the, the, a lot of people don't know about the radio show. The radio show has been, that's probably been going like 20 years. Uh, hmm. But I think it's always overshadowed by the TV thing. But the radio sure. show used to be nuts because when we when we had to play for the guests, on there so it's like an hour show the first half an hour is just the rhythm section and jules chatting away playing whatever we want to play then the mm-hmm. guest comes in and we we do a, a song with them there and then and then the rest of the interview is them being 
interviewed about their lives. You know. but when awesome. we, you know, but we played with as many cool guests on the radio show as we did in the TV show. I mean, the, you know, we had Amy Winehouse uh, on the. Yeah, show. I know. Yeah, you mentioned it. Yeah. yeah, she man, what a what a just a, such a strong, interesting singer. Oh yeah, she she was amazing, and she and you know the first couple of times I worked with her, she was so much fun. The last time we played with her on the Hoop Nanny. Uh, when she's duetting with Paul Weller, you know, that mm-hmm. things had changed then, you know, she wasn't who she right. was, you know, things, things yeah. had gone um, the other way, but, uh, but you, we would have people come on the radio show and we were never told what the song was going to be. So we had to learn the song in front of them. Oh, so, we oh in the studio. <laughs> so the radio shows are pre-recorded. Okay. So, mm. you know, we do the first half and then we'd have a break. The artists would come in and then we'd kind of go, what are we playing? And their their manager or MD would have a CD and they'd play it in the control room. And we had oh, funny. to sit there and learn it in front of the artists. Now, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> oh, yeah. now, the thing is, you know, there, there, there isn't, you know, like time wise, it's not as like, you, you, you know, that you, can, you can't go for too long without learning it. You know, you can't sort right. of say, oh, can we listen to it six more times? You know, it's like yeah. you've literally got to, if you can, if you can. And, and the it, thing about it is that that's not a small radio show. That's actually a huge radio show. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, so, you know, you had to make sure that within either one listening of it to maximum that you could play the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did that for years and it was hugely pressurized thing but you know yeah. what it was it's amazing thing. amazing training though right for your ears best like... thing ever because you know my my ears just went zoom like this you know because you had to listen around corners sure absolutely. Stuff. so that was that was really really good as well um so yeah it, it's 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 been a great experience uh, it, and it's one that i didn't ever see coming and in fact if you look at those early tv shows I'm dressed so shabbily, you know, I literally look, I look as though I've been out doing the gardening or I've been under a car changing the oil. I'm wearing, I just look terrible because I'd never been on TV before. Yeah. You're like, it's a whole other world. and, (laughs) and, uh, And also as my, my wife points out, I was single at the time. I didn't have a lady in my life. So, there was no one to say to me, what are you doing? Dressed what like, the hell are you wearing? You know, like a scarecrow. <laughs> what are you doing? You know, so I'm there with these creased t-shirts and oh, it's terrible. It took me years to realize, oh my God, I'm on the TV. I need to wear a suit or something. Yeah, it's actually funny because you mentioned that because if you watch the early Letterman stuff, because I grew up watching Letterman and that was when I was in high school was when that was first coming on. And yeah. it was sort of the same thing. Like they look like they just walking off the street wearing <laughs> jeans and a t-shirt. And then uh, over the years, as the money went up and they got, you know, somebody probably said, hey, you guys actually need to sort of like dress better. <laughs> I know. But again, it goes back to me always thinking of the craft. You know, I was much yeah. more Concern. Yeah, you're focused on the music. Yeah, you know, but I do look back now and I say, oh, God, what was I thinking of? You know. <laughs> See, now, now I'm going to have to go back and find the early oh, stuff. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. Uh, Dave, how, how can people find you online? I, you've got your social pages and, and, and all that. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Let- um, well, I've got, a, I've got a website, which is just simply daveswiftbase.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also on Instagram as daveswiftbase.com. And I'm on Facebook as just Dave Swift. Uh, you know, I so don't, all don't have a mission page. You know, I just, it's just me. Yeah. It's just tall yeah. wall bloke. Um, awesome. So, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that's uh, I really like. I, I love the fact that like I, you know you interact. Actually, you're one of the administrators on my base page. It's base players around the world, and um, and you're frequently on there. And and I, I I love the fact that you're interacting with the base community, the musicians community in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and guys, with your kind of experience, it's it's rare. And you're such a great teacher, and you explain things well, and you're and you're always showcasing your instruments, and it's it's exciting. It's fun. Oh, bless you. Well, it's kind of you to to say because well, at the end of the day, you know, I still love what I do, and and I am a bass nerd, and I am a bass geek. Mm. You know, I, I I am too. <laughs> I love going to trade shows. You know, I like going to sort of conventions and podcasts mm-hmm. and that stuff. I don't know. I, I've just never gotten bored with it. I just I am so passionate about it. And yeah. and when I started out there weren't any bass teachers anywhere. Like I said, for me, mm. it was a couple of Carol K books and that, that was it. Yeah. So, so obviously now there's, there's a lot more resources available, but you know, I just like to help people if I can. So I'm always happy to, to interact on social media with, 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 as long as I have the time, you know, it's, it's more difficult sure. for me now. I have a family. Mm-hmm. But I still like to do it because, and especially when, when it comes to the gear that I'm using as well, because I made a lot of mistakes early on in my career and I spent a lot of money, which I needn't have spent. Mm-hmm. You know, and it can be, uh, you know, it can be quite a blow for like younger players if they're uncertain. Yeah. To spend two or $3,000 on something that's just not going to get them where yeah, they want to go. Exactly yeah. that, you know, so, so obviously right now, if, if you don't mind me mentioning that I'm, I use Bergantino amplification. Yeah, and they're they're great. That's great people. Yeah, you know, people. and and I'm so pleased with them because it, you know literally the, the the things that are built into the the amps. There's so much stuff in in the B amp uh, mm-hmm. that I had a pedal board with all of these devices on there, and I got rid of the pedal board because everything's in the amp. Yeah, so it, and that's I mean that's and that's actually that's sort of like a dream for bass players. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you already have to carry enough stuff, and it's like you can have yeah. one thing that does everything you need. That's like that's gold. Yeah, right? and having and, and working with a company where it's it's a very family run thing with Jim and Holly mm-hmm. Bergantino. Yep. Um, you know, and any anything you want to know about, they'll answer your emails. They'll answer questions. They're they're the support. Then, yeah, I just talked to them uh, last time. I was trading messages with them at three in the morning on oh, Instagram. Yeah. Just, in fact, it's it's Holly's birthday today. Oh, okay, awesome. Uh, this actual day, so I, I did send a message. But yeah, they're 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 wonderful. I love their gear. I mean, my my touring rig. I've not seen it since last last year, because because that stays with our crew out on tour. But I've got my mm-hmm. studio rig here, which is the the lightweight cabinets. But yeah, so I've I've got the the Forte HP amp out on tour i've got the bm here at home a mixture of cabs so yeah the bergantino stuff for me is i i think that's it i think i'm done for the rest of my career now i can't yeah I can't imagine moving on from 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 that you know yeah I, and i i and i feel you on that situation too and those guys it's hard to find you know the gear thing i've, I've been i've done the same thing you have i've had really expensive bases i've had bases i actually for some reason i've always tended to like the bolt-on sure. fender-ish you know i mean that's i was with yamaha for a long time which we talked about um and now i'm, I'm with um uh, valenti which is he used to work with sadowski so it's sort of that fender-ish thing which always feels like home to me but, um Thank you so much, Dave, for taking the time. Um, I, you've got such a story. We could actually probably go on for another <laughs> three hours, and it's and we talk, you know, frequently online, and and it's just fun to keep up with your energy. Oh, I love the positivity, um, and it, it's just great to see that. So I, I really well, want to you, thank you, you have so that much. Too, you know, so that it's great to you know for me because I, I I've you know feed off that from from you too. You know, you're you're very you're similar in that way. You have that 
positivity and that enthusiasm and that kind of, you know, always moving forward, you know, it's important. Well, I, I try. I don't always succeed, but I try. <laughs> But um, we will put, um, for the people that are watching this, we're going to put Dave's links on the uh, um, podcast information. So check that out. Please um, check him out on Instagram, on Facebook, send him a friend's like, and, uh, and you'll see him also on, on our base page, base page, uh, base players around the world. And uh, I do have, have a, sorry to interrupt. I do have a YouTube channel okay. as well. Oh, okay. I, th awesome. I think it's just Dave, if you just go onto YouTube and you just type in Dave Swift, you'll see all my videos. So okay. there's a lot of the stuff from my appearances with Jules on his TV shows. Yeah. And also too, I should mention that the Jules shows, many of them actually are on YouTube. So you can, you can check that out and they're all great. Yeah. I mean, you guys are backing up a lot of people also with a lot of the bands that are on there. It's all amazing stuff. It's just awesome. But um, thank you so much, Dave. I really, really appreciate it. Pleasure's all mine, I can assure you. Awesome. We'll talk to you soon. And everybody, please um, check out the podcast, all the different episodes. We're, we're building a good catalog now. A lot, a lot of bass players, but also people that aren't bass players. <laughs> but we have some exciting guests coming up. So thank you so much, Dave. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us. And please consider subscribing to our podcast and follow us on our social media pages for guest announcements.